All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Elections Daily, uh, where we talk about the last week of election news and politics. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham, and with us, as usual, we have Joe Szymanski, who is the head of the elections team here at Elections Daily, and Dylan Wade, who is a contributor for Elections Daily. Um, Hello. Yep. So the last uh, last week, and particularly yesterday, has been a pretty big uh, situation for Republic or for, not for for uh, for Congress and for elections in general. So we'll go ahead and start right on it. Um, last night, a vote was held, procedural vote, to uh, pursue what would be called the nuclear option, in support of the Democratic bills, the for the or the uh, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Uh, both of which have 50 votes in the Senate, but do not have the 60 votes needed to secure a filibuster, uh, to break the filibuster. Um, the What happened last night was the vote failed, uh, 52 to 48, with uh, Republicans, all of the Republicans voting against uh, ignoring the filibuster rules, along with two Democrats, uh, Joe Manson and Kirsten Sinema, who have both made uh, well and truly public their, uh, their opinion that the filibuster is necessary to be preserved. Um, and of that in general. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, we'll go ahead and throw it to Joe and, and Dylan here to kind of dive into this a bit. But the big thing we're keeping an eye on here, uh, in addition to the failure of this, is the implications on Biden's domestic agenda and also the potential follow-up that could occur, which is the focus on the Electoral Counting uh, Act, which seems to be gaining a little bit of steam. So I'll go ahead and throw it to Joe here. Uh, let him lead off, and then Dylan can follow after him. Yeah, uh, last night was was a long night for many reasons in American politics. Uh, we we just had a night where uh, just we just had a lot of stuff come at us at, all at the same time, which is sometimes just how this uh, this country works. Really, what we saw here with the failure here on, on the on the voting rights legislation was was not a surprise. You know, if you were surprised by this, you weren't paying attention. Uh, Senators Cinema and Manchin had continually and repeatedly said they would not vote to end the filibuster. And then last night when that vote came up, they did not vote to end the filibuster. You know, it, it should not be a surprise to anyone that that is what happened. And, you know, it's it's now a blow for the Biden presidency and also for, you know, potentially some senators that their vote is now on the record for a failed measure, similarly potentially to the failed Obamacare vote that was held in the United States Senate for Republicans in 2019, you know, uh, 2017. You know, we see a similar thing here where what was supposed to be a big part of the uh, newly elected president's uh, platform has now kind of suddenly been defeated because a senator or two in his own party uh, really kind of failed to, uh, you know, col collapse that. It's 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 a real issue. And then there were some weird things said uh, in the aftermath. Uh, Joe Biden, I believe, I believe it was this morning, said that without this legislation, the results of the 2022 election are potentially in question, which, you know, makes makes no sense really to anyone, I don't think, at this point. You know, I, I, I think most people should be surprised i i think i know the point they're trying to make that apparently republicans are with the new uh just basically making voting as it was pre-pandemic uh will make sure to stop these elections uh you know no you know that's not how this works that's not what this is you know i i think we have used now 
uh, used the term, I think, for a while now, and I think it's become even more clear uh, in the past of the lies spouted by former President Trump that we have used the words uh, basically election integrity and, you know, false results, I think, quite liberally, you know, to rig an election would mean you have to you have to change votes or you have to physically stop people from voting. Uh, n- none of the legislation uh, that would be proposed right now would would do that. Let's let's just put that right now. There would be there is nothing out there right now in legislation that would physically stop anyone of any person who was of age from voting. And there is nothing that is going on right now that would seem like Republicans or Democrats or anyone are actively changing results. No one has rigged an election here in America. Uh, and if they have, then it's been a pretty impressive long, long spree cover up that they've been able to keep quiet for so long. Yeah, um, I basically agree. Um, uh, basically, um, I don't understand what the strategy here was. Um, I think both of these bills should have been passed. But as we said last week and the week prior on this show, those bills had no hope of passing. Mm-hmm. Putting putting your incumbents on the record is generally fine. I don't think it's always a bad thing if the vote is going to succeed. Um, you don't You don't try to pass something that the popularity of is questionable. Um, you don't doom that vote. The only reason you would put something on the record is if it's really popular everywhere. Um, like the stock ban bill that we talked about last week. If you wanted to put incumbents on the record on that, that is a viable strategy. Mm-hmm. Putting your incumbents on the record for a divisive issue in a midterm year that's going to go poorly for you seems to be a dubious strategy at best. Um, And then Biden's comments about the 2022 midterms possibly being illegitimate are even more confusing. Um, If you wanted to say, oh, that's a strategy to gin up support within the Democratic caucus, do you really think that talk is going to win over Manchin or Sinema? That's not going to work. What what other strategy would there be? Because um, I don't think Biden believes that. Um, I, I I don't. So what's the angle? You've just taken away the best argument you have against Trump, um, that he's a unique threat because he calls elections illegitimate. You can no longer say that. Um, I just, I don't, understand what the strategy is Mm -hmm. and it wasn't just biden that was saying this it was uh, kamala harris went on to uh, i believe it was cnn and uh was specifically asked if she would uh, like her thoughts on it basically dodged the question the whole time uh jim clyburn who's another high-ranking democrat went on and said basically said he agreed with biden about that and then you had jen saki walking it back and saying well that's not what he intended to say what he meant to say was if there is voter suppression the results be illegitimate that's very different from what he actually said and it, it honestly baffled me when I heard it because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to go through like you were saying. It, it, was, it was certainly a bizarre way to end the whole voting rights bill debacle, uh, just, and, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and by running in, in the election, you agree to the rules of the election. 
you should try to change. If you believe the rules are wrong, you should try to change them. I think they should be changed. But by running the candidate, you agree to those rules. You don't get to agree to rules and then call them illegitimate later. Mm -hmm. Especially after you've lost or before you think you're going to lose, which is presumably what, I mean, the only reason, I mean, if they thought they were confident about winning, I don't think he would be saying this. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume the strategy was to emphasize the urgency of the need for those bills. But for 96% of the Democrats in the Senate agree with that already. And the 2% you need aren't going to be swayed by that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also potentially a problem. I think some people are mentioning in the comments about four potential incumbent senators, Uh, Mark Kelly, uh, it would be the big one, Maggie Hassan, but also a bunch of other moderate senators who'd previously supported the filibuster um, are now in a position where you have basically almost all of the democratic caucus saying they will do this if they get a majority. That's more than two, presumably, because you need 50 to do it. 50 plus the vice president. Republicans have basically sworn up and down they won't repeal. Tom Tillis not right set on the floor. He would he would resign from the Senate immediately if they got rid of the filibuster. So you can kind of take them at their word there. But it, it's it seemed like a, a very strange move that didn't really pay off in any meaningful sense. Um, I'm really not sure about the focus. And then on top of that, you have all this other stuff going on. It seemed kind of like a sideshow. Uh, you know, listening and talking to it. it, it didn't seem urgent, like as urgent as people were have been. On, the, on that side of the aisle have been presenting this as, as an urgent existential threat. I didn't get that vibe from what anyone was saying. Uh, kind of felt like they were just going through the motions, which they pretty much were, because the, the result was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, and see, the difference between this and the failed ACA repeal is I don't think McConnell knew that that vote would fail until it did. Mm-hmm. Schumer knew it would fail, and he still put it up, which it just it's, it, it's, it's incredibly baffling. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that is correct. That's that's why the McCain thumbs down was such a big deal because people legitimately they they knew that Susan Collins and uh, <laughs> similarly similarly though GOP knew they had two senators who are going to vote no on this: Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. However, remember that the Republican Party at the time in that time in t- late 2017 they had it was before uh, uh, Doug Jones had been elected. Uh, this was before Doug Jones had been elected to the Senate in Alabama. So the Republicans still had a two-seat majority uh, at this point, 52 to 48 in the United States Senate. So with the vice president's vote, they knew that they could lose Collins and Murkowski and still be okay. They did not know that John McCain was going to do that <clears throat> in 2017. And, of course, that then turned into a big blunder that may not necessarily in – the Senate, uh, for certain folks, uh, you know, uh, obviously it did hurt, end up hurting uh, Dean Heller in Nevada and others. But in the House, that's certainly when the Senate failed to pass the legislation because it had stayed in the House. It certainly hurt a lot of House incumbents. Uh, and here, where I do think uh, Democrats certainly have more vulnerable senators than uh, Republicans did in 2018, Democrats, I think, have more vulnerable ones here. You know, this is a big blow, I think, specifically to Mark Kelly. Uh, you know, this this is a vote that I think could very easily come back to hurt him if Republicans uh, nominate, I, I think, a solid candidate like Mike Brnovich, you know, the incumbent attorney general. You know, if they if they nominate Brnovich, Mark Brnovich, you know, they have a chance. They, I think now this is an issue that is very easy to go out and say, 
here's what he did. And, you know, that's an issue to kind of campaign on. You know, it might not be something that is the big issue they campaign on, but it's another tack onto the board of something you can make a quick ad about and get something thinking in people's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, uh, right now, Democrats are reflexively on the defense because of the environment. You don't, even if it's a small thing, you don't want to give any ground unnecessarily. And this was completely unnecessary. There was no reason to hold this vote. Um, Pelosi, when the bipartisan infrastructure bill vote was going to fail in the House, she canceled the vote and held it off until she had the votes. That's what you do. You don't go on to have a high profile defeat that dooms a bunch of your incumbents or potentially dooms a bunch of your incumbents for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's definitely a, a strange decision. I think we can all agree on that. On the other side, uh, it does look like there has been progress on the Electoral Count Act front. Um, similar to the similar to the decoupling of the infrastructure package from the Build Back Better, if you want to, you can argue it was a decoupling or it was a um, it was a bipartisan bill. But the point is, they Biden got at least some of what he wanted with the infrastructure bill. Um, Democrats have not prioritized electoral count reform at all until now, but there is a bipartisan group of senators that are working to adjust the electoral count act, which is passed in 1887. Uh, it it is basically the sole reason for why what happened on January 6th happened, uh, providing a time, a date, and a location for the counting of electoral votes when this can be done automatically um, without having any one person being tasked with reading them, without allowing senators to provide an objection and House members to do it and then have to debate on the merits of, uh, of districts. which has happened in basically every single presidential election. Um, an attempt to do this has happened basically every single presidential election except for 08 and and 2012 or 2012 or 2020 or yeah sorry 2012 um it's basically happened every single time since there's been an attempt or a successful attempt to force debate uh during the counting of electoral votes uh right now susan collins and mitt romney are both confirmed to be part of this group uh there's an additional six democrats that are known to be a part of it including joe manchin uh, angus king uh amy klobuchar dick durbin apparently um this has generally been considered the more achievable because this has been a thorn of the side in both parties. In fact, it's generally disproportionately affected Republicans. Um, it happened in 2000 uh, where it was their attempts to uh, to force objections to Florida's electoral votes. There were successful objections that required a debate over Ohio's electoral votes, a state that George Bush won by a very large margin in terms of the popular, but about at least 100,000 votes. And then 2016, you also had an attempt from Democrats to object to the votes. So obviously, Republicans successfully uh, were able to stage their own um, debate in 2020. But generally speaking, Republicans have been more on board with this because it's probably affected them more than most of this. And this would get rid of most of the election subversion threat in the long run. Um, this is a, this is a couple of weeks after Chuck Schumer had said that there would be no action on electoral count, that there would be no bill, and that he would not allow anything to happen. So I, the fact that Dick Durbin is on board says otherwise now. Dick, I, you, Dick Durbin would not be do, would not be in working for something that would not be able to happen, I don't think. Yeah, I would just like to say that I think I called that last week. I said <laughs> that was not going to last. <laughs> yeah, it's a win. It's a genuine win if you're able to fix this. And it's something you probably get 90 to 100 votes on in the Senate, if we're being honest. Because nobody wants to be put in that situation where they're not only being forced to to sit there for hours as votes are counted, they're also being pressured by constituents to object to an election 
that is frankly unobjectionable um, in almost all circumstances. Uh, so we could see more action of that coming. It could be similar to bipartisan infrastructure where there looked like there was no action on Build Back Better. Then it's decoupled. The infrastructure thing happens. There's a vote on that. That, that at least happens. Um, that can be considered some sort of win for uh, Democrats and, and voting advocates as well as Republicans if, if something were to happen on this front. Uh, but we'll go ahead and shift to our next uh, topic, which is a, which is a total surprise. Over uh, yesterday, uh, Congressman Henry Quaylar of the Texas's 28th Congressional District, a Democrat, the one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. He's pro-life, generally pro-gun, the only Democrat to vote against the PRO Act, um, among other things, a continual thorn in the side of more liberal Democrats and also an ally in some cases of Texas Republicans and Republican um, moderates generally well-liked by the Texas Republican establishment, uh, his house in Laredo, Texas, was raided by the FBI uh, pursuant to a law enforcement investigation. Uh, there's no indication that if there are any indictments pending, what this was about, the specifics. I've heard campaign finance, I've heard other things, but this is a pretty serious deal and could lead to, in the long run, if there's a resignation or an indictment, a special election in this house district. Now, the 28th district is pretty interesting, uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that it was a traditionally very Democratic district. This is a district that voted for Hillary Clinton by about 20 points, that voted for uh, Obama by about 20 points in 2012. Um, so very, very traditionally Democratic district, but a very conservative Democratic district like most of South Texas. Uh, in the 2020 election, it only voted for Joe Biden by about four percentage points. Now, Henry Quaylar won the district by almost 20 points. He, he basically performed as, as he typically performs or as the district traditionally performed. He didn't do as well as his previous efforts. Um, this is after he narrowly survived a primary challenge by progressive Democrat, Jessica Cisneros or Cisneros. Um, she is running again this time. And it's generally considered that she has a pretty good shot of flipping the democratic side. Now um, Republicans did not draw the new 28th district to be as competitive as the current one. It's actually, I believe, the, the least competitive of the Rio Grande Valley districts. Um, it's, oh, sorry. No, it's uh, the new 34th. Yeah, the new 34th. Yeah. It's still the least competitive because that's, uh, I believe that's Biden plus double digits. The yeah. new uh, 28th is Biden plus eight. It is yeah. still Biden single digits, but it is le it is theoretically less competitive mm -hmm. than what the old one was. And the 15th is now also a, a competitive Trump one district. So this is still a little bit, uh, this is a district that Henry Quiller would have no difficulty holding, but it is a district that a generic Republican could have very easy time winning potentially against Jessica Cisneros, especially in a off year. Uh, if you look at previous elections in this district, um, going back to 2008 under the old lines, Obama won the district about 56 to 44. Um, in the in comparison, Henry Quaylor won the district 69 to 29. So it's a 40 point margin of victory. In 2010, he only won the district by 15 points. So he performed about the baseline of Obama, but we have seen shock uh, districts, and most notably the district that stretched from Cameron County uh, all the way up to uh, to Corpus Christi. That was a surprise flip in the 2010 elections. Republicans flipped that district and uh, a majority Hispanic district back when the area was much less conservative and much less Republican voting. Um, so potentially this has a lot of implications, all of which we're going to talk about. I'll go ahead and throw it to um, to Dylan to kind of talk about the progressive side of things, what this means for uh, Cisneros' campaign. Uh, she's already got an endorsement from AOC, among other people. Um, and then we'll go ahead and throw it to Joe as well, and we'll kind of talk more about the broader political implications of what this means for our ratings and the competitiveness of the state in, in a special election and in a general election. 
Well, I think this can really only be seen as a positive for uh, Cicernos's campaign. Um, if Quaylar resigns, um, that's now a that's now a seat where she would probably be the prohibitive favorite. Um, she'd have a massive head start on any other Democrat who would try to run and say nothing comes of this. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's had an investigation against him for campaign finance violations that she can hit him on among all the other things she could have hit him on mm -hmm. that almost worked last time. Um, I, I don't see a scenario where Quaylar is in, uh, is in the house in 2022, uh, sorry, 2023, um, unless he decides to swap parties. <laughs> <laughs> and even then it might be a little bit uh, questionable. To, yeah, to that be would, sure. yeah, that would be tricky, but Hey, maybe he could pull a Vandrew. Yeah. Or there's other Texas Republicans. There's a bunch of Texas Republicans. You could, you could compare that example to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not we're not going to discount entirely Cicernos's thing. This is still a Biden district plus eight. And the actual new district that will be drawn is a district that voted for Biden by almost double digits. Uh, normally, that's pretty good for Democrats. Progressives have won districts of that partisanship um, all over the and, country. That's not a particularly hard thing to do. Yeah. And it's not like Cicernos uh, is a bad candidate. Um, Quaylar has built-in advantages in the district that make him a stronger candidate, certainly. Mm -hmm. But it's not... She's not Kara Eastman. She's not running an inept campaign, to put, to, or to put it one way. She's not alienated the state Democrats, I don't think, like no. Kara Eastman had done. Yes. Uh, no, I, I think she'd be a much stronger progressive candidate than mm -hmm. Eastman was. Now, it's worth noting that if there is a special election, there will be different candidates, different filing. I believe Texas uses a top two system, which could result right. in a bizarre result like we saw in Texas, the sixth district, where two Republicans made the runoff. Uh, I would say it would be less likely here. It would probably be more likely to have one Republican or one Democrat, potentially two Democrats, a conservative Democrat and a progressive Democrat. There's a bunch of scenarios you could possibly see here. Um, but it's also not – Cisneros may not run in that special election. Um, there may be a Republican that runs there that's not running in November. You could see a bunch of very bizarre scenarios if there is a special election in this district, uh, to, to put it simply. Um, we'll go ahead and also uh, – Joe has some insight here on the district's rating, uh, our thoughts before and our thoughts after uh, this particular scenario. What, what could happen if there's a resignation? What could happen if, uh, if Quaylar loses the primary? And we're, we're kind of seeing things going. Yeah. So currently right now, uh, under the new lines, the expected races for 2022, uh, we have Texas 28th rated as a likely Democratic seat. Uh, this is a seat that is, I've, I've always said, is closer to the lean's end of the likely category, as that means it's a seat that we would probably move to lean's before we move it to a safe Democratic seat. Uh, you know, this is still not, this is still a Biden plus eight district, which means that Democrats have a reasonable advantage but not a overcoming uh, advantage uh, that, you know, certain other seats would have uh, that are Democratic leaning. It is not an overcut, you know, an impossible advantage to overcome, especially in a midterm uh, wave election that we are starting to see the environment come to hate here. Uh, when it comes down to if Quaylar is not the nominee, uh, we would probably see the seat move to lean D. Uh, the only reason, uh, honestly, the seat is starting at likely is due to Quaylar's incumbency factor. 
again, like Eric said, it's not because we think Cisneros is a bad candidate. It is because Quaylar is an overtly strong candidate uh, for this seat compared to everyone else. Yeah. Uh, you know, and in a special election, if this is as serious as we say, and to bring that point, something just came across my desk uh, from Patrick Svitek, who's part of the Texas Tribune, uh, Better Jobs Together, which is a pro-Quaylar uh, group that's been on TV for him for weeks in that 28th district is cutting its current buy uh, for this upcoming week. Uh, this buy was supposed to last to the 29th of January. They are cutting it nine days early. Uh, it ends today. So uh, potentially continued signs here uh, that there is uh, a growing problem potentially uh, here for uh, in Congressman Quaylar uh, relating to this FBI investigation uh, into him and his, you know, whatever it is, like like Eric says, we've heard campaign finance and we've also heard potentially relating to his role on appropriations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on here where we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, you know, Quaylar's campaign manager has gone dark uh, and it should be said that uh, Quay, uh, his campaign headquarters were also raided as part of the FBI investigation last night. Uh, Henry Quaylar's campaign headquarters uh, in that similar Laredo area was were also part of that raid uh, yesterday. So those, that's something else to realize. But uh, we've we've certainly got potentially a very interesting uh, look away here. What could be going down uh, in these races? Mm -hmm. And I figured I'd show the maps here for our uh, video viewers on YouTube. If you're listening to this in podcast form, uh, sorry, you're not going to be able to see this, but I figured I'd show the comparison of the old and the new lines. Uh, you'll notice the current district includes Laredo, probably the biggest, uh, definitely the biggest city in the district, part of Bayar County. And then also contains a lot of rural areas that voted for Republicans, including Zapata County and uh, Star County, which came much closer to voting Republican uh, than uh, it had in in years, I believe this was a 70 to 80 percent uh, Obama county that was very close in this election. So those are the new lines that we're looking at compared to the old lines, which saw a closer election in all three of the Rio Grande Valley seats. Um, so uh, that's definitely one we're going to be keeping an eye on. Uh, one other race will mention is the retirement uh, announcement for in Rhode Island's first congressional district or in Rhode Island's congressional district. Uh, Jim Langevin is retiring, which opens up that district. Oh, wow. Yep, that district, um, this announcement was yesterday. Langevin is, again, a more moderate-ish Democrat. Actually, it tend to be somewhat pro-life. Uh, like a lot of Rhode Island Democrats, more moderate center-right in some areas compared to other Democrats, uh, has announced his retirement. Um, the district is not expected to change too much from the previous lineup, which was a single-digit Clinton seat and a double-digit Biden seat. Uh, this contained much of rural Rhode Island. So that's a seat to keep an eye on. We're not expecting things to change too much there for now. It is Rhode Island. Uh, there's a lot of Democrats in Rhode Island, a lot of whom be very, very good fits for that district on an ideological level. Um, so that's another retirement we're keeping an eye on and race will keep you updated on in our ratings as things develop. Um, oh, uh, we should also point out, of course, uh, along with that, uh, in only about 30 minutes later, uh, Congressman Jerry McNerney of the 9th District retired uh, mm -hmm. That will lead to Josh Harder taking his place in the 9th district, uh, which leaves the 13th district, which is only about a Biden plus 10 district open. Mm -hmm. uh, we are considering moving that to leans Democratic from its likely rating. Uh, but that is another kind of a similar seat where 
similarly to uh, Texas's Rio Grande Valley, uh, um, uh, California Central Valley is another area where there's a strong Hispanic population where we really do not know how they are going to react uh, kind of to this midterm environment. We really do not know. And there's a lot of questions in the air about where some of these seats could go that even that they voted for Biden could potentially very harshly sing against him. Uh, now that open 13th district in California is one that uh, we I, we would all suggest that you should definitely keep an eye on. Mm. And it's also worth noting, of course, that the Central Valley in California is much more conservative down ballot, much more Republican down ballot than it is up ballot. Uh, one example in particular is the uh, Jim Costas district, which contains Fresno and then parts of, I believe, Madera County has been competitive in off years, even though it's a very Democratic district. Fresno County at the state level has not voted for a Democrat for governor in decades, even though it's voted uh, for Democrats for president in recent years. And obviously uh, you have um, uh, Republican congressmen who have been elected from Biden plus 10, Biden plus 12 districts, Obama plus 12, 12 districts in the Central Valley. So that's another area of keeping an eye on in terms of realignment, but also in terms of a place with already established political leanings to some degree to be a little bit idiosyncratic um, in these elections. Uh, we're going to go next to Florida, which is another uh, key redistricting battleground state. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has weighed into the redistricting uh, efforts there. Uh, the Senate and the House proposed maps, which would oddly enough have been a 14 to 14 Clinton to Trump split. Actually, I may have even 15 to 13 Clinton to Trump. That would have been about 16 to 12 Trump in the 2020 elections. Republicans have been lobbying for uh, increased gerrymandering in their states as Democrats have gerrymandered more than expected in states like Illinois, uh, Oregon, potentially New York. Uh, there's been more effort. There's more pressure from national Republicans for Republican states to follow up. Uh, Florida would be a natural choice. You could draw a map that's about 20 to 8 uh, or 21 or 20. Yeah, sorry, 20 to 20 to 8 or 19 to 10 or Sorry, 19 to uh, to 9. Get my math wrong in my head. There's ways you could draw this, basically, um, that would be uh, more favorable for Republicans than before. Uh, Ron DeSantis proposed this uh, similar app. He got rid of the 5th Congressional District, which will have an article on the, the legality of that district uh, tomorrow. I, I believe we'll have that up, which will be Friday for people listening uh, in the future uh, to when we're recording this. Um, it would also have get, gotten rid of some Democratic districts around Tallahassee, around Orlando, and I believe even around uh, Miami-Dade would have shored up some areas around there. So um, the legislature, the state Senate at least, does not seem to like this plan. They've already voted to support theirs. The House is expected to not support the Senate plan. Uh, they have stated issues with that, but it's unclear whether or not DeSantis's map, proposed map that he's been aggressively lobbying for will be used at all whether the legislature will vote to approve a map of their own and whether Ron DeSantis will actually veto the map, which would be an unusual scenario to say the least. I'll go ahead and throw it to Joe here uh, to kind of talk about what we're seeing uh, right now in Florida and how things might go from here. Yeah, I think this, uh, I, while I do not think the map that was proposed by Ron DeSantis and was put forward by his council, I do not think that is the map we are going to see by any means. That's what I want to state off here first. But I do think that it is a map that is meant to pressure certain forces within uh, the Florida state legislature. Uh, it is it is a map that is meant to pressure uh, on some of them. It is a map that is meant to say this is maybe not exactly what we should do, but you need to take some examples from this map to get me to sign off. And that will probably mean 
some redesigns around the Orlando and uh, Tampa Bay St. Pete area compared to what we have seen proposed from uh, currently by the Florida legislature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's really the key thing here. Again, I really don't think this is a map that, as it stands as proposed, I don't think that will be the final map. I will be very surprised if it somehow gets to be the final map. I think that it is a final map that would have a many, many a risk of getting slapped down. But however, uh, I do think that it is a map specifically in the Tampa Bay, uh, St. Petersburg, and the Orlando area meant to put pressure on uh, the map drawers there to redo those areas to be more favorable to Republicans than what they currently are now. Mm-hmm. And there's particularly two Democrats that Republicans have been wanting to get rid of. Charlie Crist, who represents most of uh, St. Petersburg, uh, uh, Pinellas County uh, in Congress. Uh, the traditional or the previous Republican maps had drawn in St. Petersburg with Tampa into a super Democratic pack and then left the rest of Pinellas County in Republican districts. Uh, the DeSantis map would keep that design while the Republican design would actually have three Democratic districts in uh, Pinellas County and in uh, Tampa as well, all uh, three Democratic districts about of anywhere from between three to five, eight-ish points uh, in there. And then obviously Stephanie Murphy, who was retiring, um, Republicans in the Senate map and the House map have left her district intact, uh, her Democratic trending Seminole County-based seat. The DeSantis map gets rid of that district and makes the Republicans sink as well. So obviously some pressure trying to be put from DeSantis uh, into legislative districts. Uh, legislative uh, Republicans in the state of Florida. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's going to be, again, it, it is going to be a move uh, that we'll see. Again, I think if we see changes, and I think they'll come from the Florida House, it'll be around the Orlando area and around the Tampa Bay area, and potentially some showing up in some of those Miami-Dade area seats as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have any thoughts, Dylan, before we move on to our final topic, which will be North Carolina's uh, newest redistricting drama? Uh, not really. No, go ahead. Yep. So uh, our last topic before we go off for the night is uh, my home state of North Carolina is perpetually a redistricting battleground, not only in terms of uh, who will, uh, who draws the maps, what they look like, but also uh, courts, lawsuits, VRA, any number of things that have caused our maps to be struck down multiple times in the last uh, three decades, going back to the 1990s. Um, uh, the latest, uh, uh, battle in the legislature, I should say, is that Republicans are trying to push back the primary date um, in order to ensure the legislature can draw new lines after the Supreme Court makes their decision, if they have to. Uh, The legislature normally has 14 days to redraw districts after the Supreme Court strikes them down, the state Supreme Court. Um, But the primary date, if the court pushes this back too far, could not give them enough time to do that. In which case the fear for the Republican legislature is that the court would then uh, take the authority from the legislature to draw maps themselves, which is of dubious constitutionality to begin with. Um, Democrats have opposed this effort. Roy Cooper is said to be ready to veto a bill moving the primary dates back. Um, and then this could lead to even a further issue where Republican legislatures are now, or certainly Republican operatives, are now threatening to impeach some of the Supreme Court justices in order to ensure that they're able to redraw the maps. To, to, um, to clarify why they would be able to do this and what this would be uh, imposed of is the North Carolina Constitution, like most state constitution, contains a provision for impeaching justices. 
uh, justices can be impeached by a simple majority of the legislature, which Republicans have no need to weigh in with the governor. And then you have to, to be removed. You have to get a supermajority, or I believe it's either three-fifths or two-thirds of the legislature to agree. Obviously, you're not getting that, but the Constitution has a loophole. There is no time limit in the Constitution on when the impeachment trial has to take place. Um, so in theory, Republicans could impeach the Supreme Court justices, schedule the trial for the 31st of April, 2023, and a, a date which does not exist, by the way, um, <laughs> and, and just call it a day. Now, the justices could resign, in which case Roy Cooper could appoint new justices and the cycle could continue to repeat. Um, needless to say, this would be a constitutional crisis on a number of levels, both in the Supreme Court potentially seizing redistricting authority, which they really don't have. Um, to directly draw maps themselves. There's also the fact that Anita Earls is previously a Democratic redistricting lawyer who had been active in efforts to draw new maps in the 2010s, potential conflict of interest. You have Republican conflicts of interest as well. Uh, you have the legislature, again, potentially threatening to just blow everything up. Um, so politics as usual in North Carolina. Keep an eye on, on the state. Uh, this is a pretty big deal. The Republican map would contain as few as three Democrats in a good year for Republicans. Uh, in a good year for Democrats, they could win maybe four, four or five uh, districts out of 14. Um, the difference between the difference between an 11 to three map and a, a not and an eight to six map or a seven to seven map is pretty big. Um, when your Congress is nearly split 50 50 and you have redistricting happening all over the country. So once again, North Carolina will be at the forefront of redistricting. There's other states we'll be keep covering in the future. Pennsylvania in particular is going to have some real redistricting fun coming up. Uh, there's other, I believe a few other states haven't even finalized the plans. Kansas has proposed several. Uh, we will be covering all these at elections daily in the future. Uh, don't worry. And on elections weekly. Um, but yeah, that's the, the state of redistricting in North Carolina. It is a uh, politics as usual here, which means to say it is bloody and it is potentially a, uh, causing a constitutional crisis. So basically just another Wednesday or Thursday hey. here in, in our state. Um, and so with that, we'll go ahead and uh, end tonight's episode. Uh, thank you guys for watching. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Uh, whether you're watching on YouTube or on our podcast platforms, be sure to like, and subscribe. We appreciate your support and doing that helps us improve and grow as a, as a, uh, a content creators. And that's, I guess for, for lack of a better term. And uh, and improve our situation. Uh, we're happy to work the DDHQ. We have some really cool projects coming up in the future that you're going to really, really appreciate. I uh, can't say what they are, uh, but they're really, really cool things you're going to want. You're going to want. So you're going to want to follow us on Twitter as well at elections underscore daily. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at de Cunningham too. Uh, where can we follow you guys on Twitter, Joe and Dylan? Uh, you can follow me at Joseph Samansky. That's at J O S P H. Uh, S-Z-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I, all, all in one word, basically. Uh, follow me there. 50% uh, of the time, you'll see me break something interesting about politics. The other 50% of the time, I'm probably yelling about the Washington Capitals and, you know, multiple hockey games. You know, it's a fun time. Uh, I, again, I, I want to also uh, make sure I, I kind of uh, can do with Eric here. We really appreciate the continued support. Uh, tell your family and friends. I know you folks, I'm sure, have similar friends with similar interest in politics if you're listening to this. So tell your friends, uh, you know, tell your family. Any support is always appreciated and continually welcome uh, here at our site. Uh, you can find me at Dylan B. Wade 1, uh, D Y L A N B uh, Wade, W A D E, and then the number one. Um, 
I don't tweet much, but you'll get some movie opinions. Uh, <laughs> you'll get some politics. This has been a yeah. lot of fun. Glad to be here. Keep listening. We'll see you guys next week. Yep, we will. And you can, yeah, and as always, you can find us at elections-daily.com uh, where we post news articles. Uh, we have tools, all sorts of wonderful things you'll love on the website. So again, thank you guys for watching or listening. Uh, and we'll be back next week, same time, same place.